out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As always, we love a special guest. And this week it is going to be the turn of the guitarist, Jim McCulloch, who I spoke to recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, or the other sort of groovy stuff. Yes, he, as I probably mentioned, was in the Soup Dragons, that classic band from the 80s, almost into the 90s, who had huge hits, including our favourite, Whole Wide World. And also, yes, the other one that everyone loved so much. Hang 10. Oh no, I'm free. Anyway, recently he's now, well he's now in a band called Snow Goose, who's just got a new album. But, enough of me. I think we need the interview. Yes, this is it. And after a bit of casual chat, we got down to the exciting interview. And uh, yes, wanted to find out about those early musical influences. Jim, it's over to you. When I was at high school, um, I self-taught, the, how to play the guitar along with I had a Beatles songbook um, that one of my aunts kindly gave me and I just learned how to play the guitar listening to Beatles songs and from then going into like high school we started to discover like bands like The Jam and laterally the Aztec Camera and Orange Juice and we would read their in- interviews and smash hits in the NME very religiously and comb over the words to find references in music that they were name-checking. So from people like Roddy Frame, I got the Chocolate Watch Band and 13th Floor Elevators and bands like that. And then from Paul Weller, we got The Action and The Who. And then I, you, that kind of way, you just gradually build from the bottom up. You know, you would, you would find out what you liked and what you didn't like, and you would buy records on the strength of their covers and uh, recommendations from musicians in the press. Uh, uh, it was a good way to learn. You would make mistakes, but, you know, that's, that's part of it. Yes, well, it's interesting because... Yeah, um, oh, my vocal is a bit weird there. Um, yeah, because the uh, because it was the, uh, Paul Weller who probably introduced me to the action as well, but, which is quite interesting because not many people... I don't know, perhaps they do, but I don't know many people who like the action and sort of remember getting one of their albums, which probably had all the hits on, and thinking... This is amazing. I also found out that um, Phil Collins loved them as well, which was fine. Um, so that was that was all good stuff. So because because I put indie pop down between the years of um, kind of eighty three to eighty seven, which were actually the years of the Smiths. But I know there's a bit before and a bit after that. It's not it's not a completely watertight theory. But you you obviously you know doing that that you know because you had the punk post punk in a simplistic way that whole new romantic period going on. So what. Were you sort of feeling, you know, because there's four bands that often people talk about. There's Orange Juice, the June Brides, the Go-Betweens and the Smiths. Did you, you know, were you sort of quite influenced by that slightly indie sound? Oh, definitely, yeah. I loved the bands, these the kind of indie bands that were influenced in themselves by the 60s and the, the fashions of the 60s, bands like the Love and Spoonfuls and people like that and Love, they were the bands that these other bands referenced and I loved all the, the 60s references. I was much quite a 60s kid and I think that transferred over and the com- combining with the you know the the creation do-it-yourself punk rock ethic, you know, that kind of that combination of the, the mod stuff and then the punk stuff, it kind of created this new thing and it and it what 
it was it was music that you weren't afraid to play and people who could play instruments weren't looked down on and they were you know people that could play like a major seventh chord were thought of oh that's a good chord how did you do that you know people were curious about becoming better not just you know playing three chords but actually being able to you know look through the past and you know cherry pick great things from the 50s and the 60s and the 70s yeah Yeah. did you and did you um because you were sort of I kind of I can remember uh, John Peel doing that documentary when he came up to Scotland to talk to um, Shane. Is it Shane? Oh, be Sean. Sean. That's right. And um, so you were you all sort of based in Motherwell at that stage? Yeah. Well, myself and other guys like Jay Love, we were we went to school together in Motherwell, and people like uh, Sean and Douglas and Norman Blake, um, they went to school in Bells Hill. Um, which is the next stop on the train line that goes into Glasgow. Um, so we were all in our own wee worlds in Motherwell and Bells Hill in our own little bubbles, but we were going into Glasgow every Saturday to busk. And I was playing with some guys. We were doing um, kind of Bossa Nova cover versions and Glenn Miller orchestra cover versions. And Norman and Sean and Douglas and his, his gang were doing like Talking Heads cover versions and their own material and we would meet on the train going in and going out and gradually that this cross-pollination of influences would start happening we recognized kindred spirits and this is obviously before social networking etc etc so it was all very and you know face-to-face and phone calls and then people would write letters and you would start picking up fanzines and going into Glasgow and all these little clubs would start appearing. So it was a very fertile time for all that kind of that kind of thing. Yes. And, and yeah, one, so the I other thing that, that um, was quite evident from sort of talking to a lot of people was that I suppose not everybody, but there was a lot of unemployment at that stage. And so kind of being unemployed for a few years was, was almost looked upon as kind of just not a career move, but certainly something quite similar, you know, because you could have the enterprise, you know, there was the unemployment and enterprise allowance yeah. and all those kind of schemes that the government had introduced that were, gave people the, the ability to be self-employed for a year. I think you had to have a thousand pounds yeah. in your bank account or something like that, which always seems a bit strange. So so that unemployed employment world was was quite... I don't know, it did, not for everybody, but it did sort of for a lot of bands give them that year or two of, of sort of being able to sort of get housing benefit and the council tax paid while sort of, sort of yes, playing the instruments. So were, were any of those things kind of part of what happened with the Soup Dragons in the early Yeah, def- absolutely. We were, that gave us breathing space, that gave us time to develop in Glasgow, you know, because we weren't in London that often. We went down now and again, but we were definitely based in Glasgow and it did give us time to just to get on with things and you know just go through what we were wanting to do and practice and record and whatnot and we were lucky enough to be um, involved with um, Big Life Music and they they gave us the the money to put in our bank accounts to prove to the, the government that we had the money but the money obviously went back to Big Life but you know yeah it gave us the breathing space to develop what we were trying to do yes so yes. when when did you settle on that your your classic lineup? Well, it kind of fell into place. If you're talking about the the, the first lineup that I'm, I was involved in uh, with Ross on drums, um, there was a, a guitarist called Ian Whitehall who was in the band before I originally joined. Um, but this was all in 1985, perhaps. 
where they they just started rehearsing and then they were offered a a, a concert at Splash One supporting Primal Scream, um, but unfortunately for Ian he was going on holiday, uh, you know the week of the the concert. So uh, Sean and the, the boys asked me if I would stand in, and yeah, no problem. And we were all playing together anyway in the sort of kind of the BMX Bandits world. Everybody was joining in with each other, but they asked me to play and then. After that, they asked me to stay, so um, I was more than happy to lend a, a guitar to the proceedings. Yes, and yeah. did you feel like you were part of a, a bit of a thing? Because obviously you've mentioned both Norman and also the BMX Bandits, who were quite a scene, and I suppose actually you had all that 53rd and 3rd Street and the shop assistants, and is it Alan Horn as well, who was such a cult yeah. figure? So was did you feel like there was something incredibly exciting happening? Yeah, I mean, it didn't. In retrospect, it's you know, as you said earlier, it it becomes a a thing that people can look back on and you know academically pick apart. But at the time, we've got to remember we were all like seventeen and eighteen year olds just having a, a good laugh. And if we were going into Edinburgh to the fifty third and third offices, we'd make a day of it. You know, we would get the train through from Glasgow and then just and treating it like a day out into into Edinburgh, and then we would just hang about the fifty third and third offices all day, annoying the staff more or less. But we would make really deep connections that you know that have lasted a lifetime. To be yes. honest, um, so there's been all that and. At the time, you're not thinking this is us making history. This is us just putting out records with our friends, and there was no great big business plans as such. But as long as we were making enough money to make the next record, we were we were more than happy. Yes, and the well that um, a lot of us, well, I suppose actually the difference between streaming and the old days and flexi discs. Yes, we because you mentioned fanzines, mm -hmm. which were obviously quite a thing back then. Um, the flexi disc as well. So you brought out the the uh, if if you were the only girl in the world so did that um because one of the things that a lot of bands have problems with is getting their sound and the engineer and producer in the studio like that so did you did you sort of as a band did it take a while for you to sort of play some that maybe but made you think actually we're on to something we're not just on to something like we're going to be big but actually that sounds pretty good yeah, I mean, when we recorded that particular track, it, it was part of, um, I think it was seven songs we recorded at the same time in the one day and then mixed at the same time. So it was all pretty rushed. Um, but, you know, we had rehearsed and, and it, was, it was a combination of factors. Um, Ross, a drummer, he had never particularly drummed before. He joined the Soup Dragons, so he was learning as he was going. So he didn't know the rules, in inverted commas, about drumming, what you're supposed to do. And Sushil, our bass player, he wasn't as much a conventional bass player. He was much more a melodic bass player. Um, so it was a, just a combination of these different styles and people not really knowing what the rules were supposed to be. And it, it just became something quite unique, I think. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. Well, it had that kind of kind of um, um, urgency that we, we indie kids loved at the time because obviously... Yeah. You know, I was kind of got to that point of being obsessed with John Peel, as in recording every, well, trying to record a lot of his shows on my trusty TDK D90 cassette. Because, you know, because <laughs> when it was all kind of new music, it's not like you can, you know, it takes a while to digest it, really. And also oh, yeah. because he did, he didn't just, you know, people who didn't listen to John Peel thought he just played indie pop. And you think, no, no, he played reggae, African music, Bulgarian folk music, kind of yeah. house music and rap. And he was playing that early rap stuff with Steady yeah. G and uh, T. La Rock and Roxé Chante. So it was kind of interesting, but it, because it was all new and it was so sort of 
well, actually, incredibly new, especially the rap stuff. It, you know, it required a few listens on the cassette. So, but but that kind of immediacy, that two and a half minute pop, that pop sound was fantastic at the time. Because the one thing that I had sort of grown to realise is that back then there were those gatekeepers. You had the NME, you had John Peel, and and most towns, cities had a sort of an indie night somewhere, somewhere mm-hmm. tucked away, which which created that network didn't it of, of some yeah. places so that must have so did you sort of feel when you got that single and then John Peel play did you feel like you were sort of suddenly had stepped up the ladder by at least three three runs yeah it did feel slightly like that there was a very much the underground thing going on and I quite liken it to the northern soul scene you know I was a big fan I still am a big fan of northern soul but it was that kind of thing there's there's true believers out there and, you know, and they've got an almost evangelical approach to the music. And they were the people that would maybe put on the clubs, um, the Splash One gang in Glasgow, and then there would be one sprung up in, in Greenock as well, and then there'd be one in Paisley, and there'd be one in Kilmarnock. And these people, kind of, through their fanzines, would start talking to each other. And I think it was just a great... Um, you know, it's a, a nascent social network, you know, and people would reach out to London and you would know the people to talk to in London and they would be starting little record labels and that wee mushrooming scene, you know, and it just gradually built from the ground up. It really did. Yes, very quickly from the ground up. So when, mm-hmm. so so as we, we sort of, we're trucking on through the decade and it was all getting very excited because in in Scotland you had an amazing scene with people like the Orchids as well and the Jasmine Minks and obviously mm-hmm. you know BMX Bandits and and that flourishing scene as well as Jesus and the Mary Chain. So did um yes so eighty six when it all started to really sort of happen for the band you had that single which I can remember John Peel playing whole wide mm-hmm. world as well and it yeah. sort of it shot into the indie charts. I mean did that feel a bit of a shock to you, to you sort of four kids. Definitely, we were we were um, advised to make a video, you know, just for that. But so we all rushed over to Edinburgh one one afternoon and put together something in, in a day. And I think Cecile had some stock footage that we used as the background, and then we played over it a few times and just having a laugh, no big plan. And we took it from there and we sent it to to London. We already hooked up with Tim Parry and Jazz Summers. By this point, I think, as far as I can remember, or we had already made the video, it was showed on the chart show, and then they picked up on it from watching the chart show, and then that became a kind of business uh, place for us. Um, they, they started to kind of manage us in inverted commas at that point. So, yeah, it was from small acorns, you know, yes. very much so. And did it feel because you were signed by the, the former Wham co manager, Jazz yeah. Summers? How did, um, how did that relationship develop? Well, that was that's where it all kind of sprung from. Them they saw our whole wide world video on the chart show, and they wanted to get involved because they were very much um, impressed by the sort of the visual side of the band. Because a lot of I think a lot of the bands maybe hadn't developed or they hadn't thought so much about how to present themselves because it really hadn't come up before. We were lucky in the fact that Ross, our drummer, had. Uh, was still at art school and he was a very obviously very striking visuals and he ended up doing a lot of our uh, early record covers which you know that was one of the reasons why I think we we kind of stuck out from the herd slightly because we were so strikingly visual as a band um yeah and they were happy with that it was like we, we were coming down to London we had the full package as such you know we had a, an image we had a, a sound and 
all this energy and they, they, they were wanting to channel it. I think Jazz had recently finished with Wham and all that side of his thing and he was wanting to start looking to, you know, move into guitar music and whatnot. I think they think U2, they were looking for the next U2, but unfortunately we weren't the next U2. <laughs> well, not quite, but you, no. you did have have quite a sort of jump here, didn't you? Because cause one thing about that indie scene, which, you know, I roughly put down as five years, you know, a lot of bands by the end sort of had got fed up, you know, a lot of those classic bands, especially the ones that had been around from 83, 84, you know, yeah. mainly because, you know, they'd done this sort of second or even third album. Things, you know, they, they they hadn't made a lot of money. They might have got on the front of the enemy and John Peel plays and sessions, and which were all good. But then, you know, there was, there's several things that knock a band out. Obviously, the lack of money, but you know, if anybody tours America, that seems to finish them off. And also the the change in musical scene, because because when the Smiths finished, they did feel a little bit like things were changing again, and that whole ecstasy world started to come in, and people wanted. Basically, there was a few bands. There was a Happy Mondays, weren't there? And uh, yeah, Primal Scream and the Suit Dragons. You were the ones who managed to do the great crossover into yeah. suddenly getting into dance. So so when you did your the first album, Hang Ten, which was kind of uh, kind of the true to the spirit of C eighty six. That that mm. that was quite different to the next album which came along. Um, this is our art, which was kind of yeah. the great the great crossover. So during that period, what was happening for the band and the lineup? This is our art um, was a quite a turning point for us. I mean, I think it took us a while to find a kind of cohesive sound on that album um, because we were all. I mean, I turned 21 during the recording of that album. We were all still pretty damn young. Um, we were all looking for our sounds. Ross was developing as a drummer and he was getting infatuated by John Bonham and people like that. And I think you can hear that in some of the songs. Um, there's definitely big Led Zeppelin influences there. And then Left Bank were a big influence in the backing vocals and use of harpsichords and whatnot. So it was this kind of mishmash. We weren't really... The suit drag. It didn't feel like that, that was a band, but we were really enjoying experimenting and having the time to stretch out a wee bit in the studio. Um, and then after the, the album didn't do very well at all, you know, we were signed to Sire Records, who'd, who'd come over doing one of these European shopping trips, picking up bands from different countries. But um, we, our single, Kingdom Cheers, came out, and then it, because it wasn't an indie single, it dropped. You know, it came in the mid fifties, I think, in the big charts, but it made no impression at all, really. Um, no indie um, chart placing because it wasn't an indie single anymore. So we kind of fell between two stools, and I think that did did for a lot of bands in that same position as well, unfortunately. Um, and after that, Ross decided, well, I want to go back to art school now, and I want to finish my degree and all that kind of thing. So we were left without a drummer. And that is a key moment, I think, you know, the crossover, that wee crossover period about 1988. Um, so we, the rest of the band, Sean, Shushil and I decided that we want to continue with this. Uh, so it, we wanted to start demoing songs. So Sean had his old uh, TR-707 or TR-808 drum machines. We started demoing things um, without a drummer because we knew we were going to have to get a drummer eventually. But the new songs started to appear with uh, drum machines and we were quite, quite getting into the, the beats, you know, at that point, because this is what we were using. And it wasn't until we realised we are going to have to start playing live again with all this new material, we'd have to get a drummer. So it was a kind of combination of programmed drums and then incorporating a new drummer and that, and just the 
been in, still in contact with Big Life in in London. They were they were managing people at Cold Cut and and all sorts of people like that. And so there was a, we were hearing music coming up from from them. And we weren't precious about anything, you know. We weren't kind of evangelical indie kids because we were open to all this other stuff. So it was just that started to cross fertilise with the music we were playing and all these rumblings from all other parts of the country. So it was pretty damn exciting time. Yes, absolutely. And also, did you have much to do with, because you mentioned Sire Records and Seymour Stein often appears in people's, did you have much um, business connection with him? Well, we met him on a couple of occasions, but it was was very much, um, he signed bands like us, he signed bands like, I think, The Shop Assistants and then James were on Sire. But, I mean, all these these people would come over from America, do make shopping trips, picking up bands, it seemed like, and then put them on the shelf, you know. I think this happened like a few decades later as well when, you know, 360 record deals would come out. They would, all these people at Interscope would pick up bands and buy them out and give them deals but then not use them so that their real band would come through, you know, they were clearing the way for other other people. So, yeah, it was a kind of cynical time in the record business. Um, you would have this brief moment of, well, I was just signed to a major record label but then, the, the downside was that you wouldn't have any more indie indie hits and you weren't hitting the top 75 high enough for the majors. So you, you were you were failing before you began, really. God, that is tricky, actually. So then, because that was kind of an exciting period, I mean, ecstasy was kind of changing the sort of musical landscape and the kind of whole rave period. Because I remember, yeah. you know, people like Guy called Gerald and then John Peel was playing the, the likes of that sort of Chicago house scene that he had on... FFRR records, a lot of the, the, that kind of yeah. particular record label, which I can't remember what those initials stand for now. But uh, anyway, it doesn't <laughs> matter, does it? But um, yeah, so so you were sort of, because a lot of bands stick with the second album and then that's it. But you were sort of, by then, you'd gone into the the next decade with Love God, which was which was, yeah. which was even more kind of out there with, with tracks like Mother Universe and, and obviously the hit that changed everything. Yeah. Was that kind of the, the most kind of life-changing moment of your... Uh, in your career, I guess it was. I mean, long, I mean, longevity. Looking back on it now, it's the one that we are still getting a lot of royalties for, and all the rest of it. I mean, it's become like an evergreen on the radio station. It appears in adverts. It appears in television shows. It appears in film soundtracks. You know, um, at the time, that song was obviously it was "I'm Free." It was a Rolling Stones track. We were looking for a. Um, a tune to play at the end of our set. Every band has a cover version, and that was our cover version. Whether we like it or not, that became. You know, we were rehearsing for a tour with our new drummer Paul Quinn, and we were looking for a track to play as an encore. Um, you know, just a cover version, and we were watching the Stones in Hyde Park, and then this they played this tune, and I said, "Well, we can play that. We could jazz it up a wee bit, make it a bit more." Um, enjoyable because it was a bit of a dirge at the time when yeah. we watched it. Yeah. But it, it, you know, we made it kind of our own song, and it and it just sort of caught fire, really. It must have been quite strange because some 
as, as being sort of those kind of indie kids who were sort of listening, you know, or sort of going back and sort of picking up all those bands in the 60s and then realising that one of them, only one of the biggest ones, that's, you know, like the Beatles or Stones, um, yes, they must have sort of got to hear, you know, this indie band from Motherwell who had sort of yeah. got their song and made it one of the great sort of anthems of our times. And I suppose it must be strange sometimes thinking, yes, Mick and Keith, they must have heard that at a few time, at a few parties and sort of uh, glamorous events. So it must it must have felt quite strange when you realised that you'd sort of entered into that world of um, being known. I mean, there was a lot of bands yeah. who, who were, you know, I loved at the time, but I don't think, you know, they were, you know, a lot of those people would have known about the Wolfhounds or Yeah, Yeah, No, or sort of <clears> even <throat> the June Brides, you know, but, you know, yeah. the Soup Dragons. I mean, you went from, you know, whole wide world to Hang Ten to, you know, on free, which decades later, you know, us indie kids will still play those early singles with great love. But but I'm mm -hmm. free. You know, we don't need to because that's going to be on radio, too, isn't it? Or radio. Yeah. Local radio for the rest of our time. Yeah, it's bizarre. You know, it did. It just became its own thing. It became an entity in itself. Um, and you do you do kind of feel detached from it a wee bit. You know, you think, well, this is like a monster that we've created here, you know, but that, you know, it's just one of those quirks of everything coming together at the same time. And it just, we just got to go with it and not, you know, I don't think you should, you know, try to analyse it too deeply because it just, sometimes things like that happen in pop music that just become a quirky one-hit wonder type thing happens and, yeah, it's just part of your story. You just yes. got to go with it. Well, I always remember sort of poor old Jeff Beck, you know, sort of has been lumbered and labor, um, sort of labelled with that hi-ho silver line, which was like, yeah. no, that's not what I want to be remembered for. But, you know, that's the one that um, has been played to death. I don't know if it still is, but I remember in the 70s and 80s that was often appearing at sort of um, family sure. events. Yeah. So that was quite strange. And also during that time, just talking of the artwork, I remember those kind of, is it fractals? You know, we were yeah. all sort of buying those posters or... Of fractals and being very excited because if you stared at them in a slightly abstract way you had a three-dimensional effect and and that cover to love god definitely uh -huh. taps into that psychedelic kind of vibe doesn't it yeah we were i mean we were obviously we were still trying to create that the psychedelic thing we were still heavily influenced by the the 60s and whatnot i think just having the, the fact that we had time in the studio and, and the technology had developed enough, we could we could use like samples from like movies, uh, like Monkey's Head and we Star Trek samples and things like that. And we're working with great producers, uh, Marius De Vries, who was a fantastic programmer, and Steve Sedelnik is a great percussionist. And they were, I mean, it just helped us, you know, change what we were doing and, and refract it and become something a bit new, you know. But it is definitely heavily psychedelicized uh, imagery and music obviously yeah so did you when you when you sort of had finished that and then sort of was still trying to I mean you were all quite amazingly young but having this phenomenal success then trying mm. to make your your next album Hot Wired how was it with the band as well as yourselves kind of, kind of individually because obviously that's that's when things get a bit tricky isn't it yeah I mean this this was the point after I'm free we started um, turning our sights to America, and because we'd always we were always desperate to get over there and play in America and stuff, but uh, you know Tim and Jazz Summers were always saying, no, no, we need to bide our time, go when it's right, you know. Um, so I think this was the time when they thought, right, okay, let's turn our sights to, but you know the, the big league, America. Um, so we were on, but at this point we had signed to Mercury Records, 
in the States. And they were very keen for us to come over. Um, and they, it was a bit of the same time, I think James were on the same same trajectory as us. They were just coming over. They had just released their first album in Sire in the same sort of situation. So we were all, we, we bumped into each other on that sort of circuit. You know, you're getting interviewed by American journalists. They flew us over to New York and we were doing press conferences in the Rock Garden and all these kind of things, the Hard Rock Cafe and whatnot. Um, yeah, it was that was a pretty exciting time because we were first time in America, first time in a, a stretch limo listening to Lou Reed going over the Brooklyn Bridge. It was living the dream, you know. You know, it's just, so there's a lot to take in. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I would imagine. So, were you when you went to record that album? Did it feel you know like positive at the time? Did it feel like things were going well? Yeah, I think it did. I mean, we were we were uh, recording Hot Wired, and we were based in Brighton for this this album. It was a residential studio in Brighton, so we were kind of well we were well enough away from London and Glasgow. But we, we kind of that residential aspect of it, you kind of become quite insulated. So we were just concentrating on what we were doing. It was the same team of people that did. Uh, production-wise, it did the Love God album, so it was all people we knew and we were working with. And I think, I think um, we were, you know, we were all cooped up together, and maybe we were starting to think, well, we need to get out and tour with this. We need to go over to America because this is where the focus of the band was. Now this is where things were happening. We'd appeared on the, the David Letterman talk show, and we were starting to do tours of college uh, cities and whatnot. Um, yeah, so we were looking at that, and then there was an NXS tour that came along, and we were on tour with NXS in America, which was like the stadiums, you know, the, the 30,000, yeah. two nights at Madison Square Gardens, and all this kind of thing. So it was like mind blowing stuff for four wee guys from Glasgow. Yes, you little, I know, because you, you also, on those early press photographs, have that great look of being slightly. Um, quite thin and sort of baggy and you know like just just incredibly indie really wasn't it you know yeah. it had that kind of you know you can see those kind of early clips like the smiths everyone's very skinny skinny kids i suppose yeah. it's almost like a half man half biscuits song from the estates kind of playing music and suddenly yeah. hidden the big time so then as with great things uh, that keep going up and up what what then sort of happens with with you and the band well, I think it's just a combination of things. I think we took our eye off the ball, and as far as the UK is concerned, because there was a started to be a, a kind of backlash against this the indie music, the crossover music and stuff, um, and we weren't really there playing concerts anymore. We, we were spending a lot of our time in America, um, really, you know, having a, a great time enjoying it. Um, but at the same time, our felt our bread and butter maybe was the, the UK audience because it's America is such a lot a large place and the intention was to crack America and, you know so we spent a lot of time there and cooped up together and we were starting to feel a wee bit constricted perhaps um, not really getting a chance to live our lives as we would like because yes, uh, yes. we were always on the road we were on the road like for three or four months at a time living in a a tour bus so you know it's starting to start to get every, every day down a little bit i would say you know it's like living in a submarine you just there's nowhere to go you, you, you're all you're all in the same boat basically yes. Yes. And had, um, so had there become sort of i'm not looking for the gossip but you know we're, we're sort of personalities getting sort of you know had, had they sort of become a bit more animated or magnified i suppose yeah i think i mean everybody starts to develop 
musically and just want to stretch out. And I think we were, you know, there's four quite strong musical personalities in the band, and it was a, we were starting to think, well, I, I would like to express myself in a different way here. Or you know, Cecile would say, like, I want to do my own thing. I want, I really want to go down the, you know, the kind of reggae freeform route and stuff like that. And that that wasn't really what the the record company wanted. So you know, we decided, well, we got to make decisions in our own lives. Are we, you know, we want to get on with stuff musically, you know, that excite us and you know, help just to move our own musical lives on a little bit, you know. Uh, so I think I think Sean also was maybe getting feeling a bit constricted by the the four, you know, the kind of and you know the four person rock band lineup yeah. think, because he you know he was moving into more like the, the dance side of things and the, the, the you know beats and stuff. And now he obviously became the, the DJ that he is today. But that's a that's a journey, you know. You can't just switch you know switch that on or off overnight it's, it's still a, you're, everybody's on voyages of discovery so yeah it, it just became the right time for us to you know go our separate ways and you know make our own make our own music for you know make us ourselves happy rather than what the record company would want to hear yes because yeah. i did an interview with a member of james who said that at the height of their their fame i suppose i think he said they were sitting around the swimming pool in spain this was in the early 90s and and he said look we all hate each other. Shall we just disband? And then they all went, yep. And they that's what they did <laughs> for about 10 years. And then they obviously realised that, yes, what do you do after 10 years? And so they got back together and have learnt to sort of love each other or work together. Yeah. I mean, did you have a sort of a moment, a sort of, you know, where you sat down and said, shall we give this a, a miss? Or did you just not turn up to a rehearsal? Well, it was just one of those things. Um, we were... I think we'd, we'd, we'd just finished a, a big American tour and we were all pretty much sick of the sight of each other at one point. Um, and then I think I think Sean had started demoing for a, a, the next album and then we were listening to the tracks and everything was kind of written and played already. So we were turning up and thinking, well, what have we actually got to input into this? We don't. I don't see any room for being a musician here or a, a creative artist. So Cecile and Paul and I decided, well, we, we don't want to do it anymore because this, this is us just being backing musicians to Sean's vision, whereas the three of us were desperate to, to do stuff of, you know, on our own because we'd all bought uh, four-track four um, home recording things. So we were, we were full of our ideas, but they weren't, there was just no room for them in, in Sean's Soup Dragons. So... It just seemed like the best thing to do was to right, split the band up and go our own way. You know, it's hard, hard decision. It's like, because that's your source of income and all the rest of it. But we thought, well, we're, we're young enough here just to, you know, cut our ties and make the make a go of it ourselves. So then, as you went to quote Joy Division, walk away in silence, yeah. possibly. Um, did you, so then what happens to you next? What happened in, in your musical journey? Because obviously... You know, there's, that's quite a long period from your sort of latest musical adventure um, mm. that you have done. The, uh, yes, with the snow goose. So yeah. So what 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 then happens to a musician? Well, I, I mean, I ended up after that. I went, you know, a couple of months not doing anything really, just trying to work out what I want. I did want to do, and then my good friend at the time, Joe McAlinden from the band Superstar. You know, I went to school with him. Um, and he used to be in the groove of little numbers, and I was quite heavily involved in all the the recording and writing of those those songs. And you know, obviously, we kept in touch 
and he invited me to join the band as a guitarist. So I was involved with Superstar for a couple of years, um, helping Joe out with his thing. And then, that, but that still wasn't me doing my thing, you know. So I was finding that quite incredibly frustrating after a while as well. So I kind of decided that like, I want, I really do want to do this myself. So it took me a while to find my own musical voice, and I started a band called Green Peppers, which is essentially just myself um, with anybody that was. You know, around it, I could, I could, you know, get to join in. I put out like three solo albums on Glasgow Neon Tetra label, and then from that, I found I got a hold of Anna, because um, I was looking for female musicians, uh, female singers to sing my songs on the third Green Peppers album, and then Anna popped up uh, through an introduction by Dave McGowan. Um, he's a fantastic musician from Glasgow, and you know, um, so Anna had never been in the studio before. And then once I heard her sing "Only Love Can Break Your Heart" and a Neil Young song, yes. and it was just like this is this is a voice that I want to work with, you know. So that inspired me to write the first Snogus album, just um, having Anna, and who had graciously agreed to sing sing the record. So. From from that small acorn, we're now on the second Snogus album. Excellent, because I've uh, yes, I I heard the the latest single, which is absolutely beautiful. So with your sort of um, obviously that's quite a different sort of um, yeah musical genre to to what you were listening to when you were growing up. Not completely because yeah. I don't know everything you listen to, but um, yeah. you know to your indie and then the rave period and phenomenal sort of excitement with the ecstasy field sort of scene did you I mean does is this kind of a do you feel like you're sort of tapping back into your sort of deep-rooted DNA I think so I do feel like I've come home you know I really do feel that musically and um, just um, strumming an acoustic guitar that's how I've, I've originally started in, in, in the bedroom just playing away playing along with some Nick, maybe Nick Drake records or the Beatles or Bob Dylan and these are the, the. It just made me think. Well, these records, these songs sound fantastic, and um, played just an acoustic guitar. And I wanted to get back to that, the, you know, the basic rootsiness of it all. And in the interim as well, I went back to I went to university because I originally didn't. I left. I dropped out uh, when I was nineteen. I was at college, but then I went back to university just about four or five years ago, and I managed to get myself a a BA and then I got myself a master's in songwriting and, and just things like that have really have helped me um, just find my own my own voice and things and it's just like not to be so uh, worried about like you know what kind of music I actually like here you know I'm as much a fan of um, Glenn Miller Orchestra as I am of maybe like the Tame Impala record and stuff like that. And there's room for it all, you know, there really is room for it all. As long as you like it and it's and it's good music, then why not? Yes, well, yes. absolutely. And also, I mean, one of those bands that I remember, you know, when I was younger, I suppose my um, I'm in my yeah, mid-50s now, I was born in the mid-60s. So my brother was a bit older than me, so he introduced me to lots of prog rock bands. But he used to have those kind of rock books that we used to sort of I used to flick through and sort of want to to like so you know there were bands that I was curious about like there's a band called Spirit with Randy California that I got but there was a couple that were always in the top 10 of like band you know albums you should love and one of them is the the incredible string band was that ever an artist or not an artist but a band that you you ever sort of tapped into because I'm always yeah I guess I mean I mean they had crossed my radar I remember when we used to stay with um, Dan Tracy um, in London back in the mid 80s 
um, his girlfriend at the time um, was in a band called The Hangman's Beautiful Daughter, and I thought that's a fantastic name for a band. And where did that come from? And then it said, oh, it's this incredible string band, you know. And then there was, there was an Electra connection there as well that, that I thought was quite interesting. That a kind of Scottish influence, you know, a Scottish band that are connected to Electra, that the band, the label that Love were on, you know, I found found that mind blowing. And I, you know, I did listen to them a little bit, and, and I found it some of it quite over the top. <laughs> kind of witchy poo kind of thing going on but um, yeah if, always interesting I'll say that yes well it's yeah, interesting because um, yes my echo there because um, um, quite recently and, it, and that's something that's I hadn't thought about until you mentioned Dan Tracy the legendary Dan Tracy who's yeah. kind of yes part of that kind of the, that world wasn't he because because yeah. um, one thing I've noticed that, and I sort of said it right at the beginning I'm not I'm not don't worry if you didn't remember it. But, you know, often that period of time passing 25 to 30 years, um, you know, we sort of, things happen, you think, oh, that was nice, move on. Then you start looking back and Cherry Red Records have obviously been reissuing an yeah. awful lot of indie stuff like that. And then there's been a few other little labels that have also come across that, that, that you know, people have started, real fans. Obviously, there's probably not much money in it. But there's one based in Preston called Optic Nerve. And they've reissued wow. The Hangman's Beautiful Daughter kind of uh, collection of singles and flexi discs right. which is just I wasn't aware of that. which is just coming out and interesting enough I interviewed two of the members I think it was only four um quite recently so that was it was like wow not many people would have um know that band you know and again like you yeah. I I sort of um I tried not ask and tried not to ask them that question like where did you get the name of that band from but um I think I probably yeah. did actually. So yeah, so you were sort of aware of the Dan Tracy scene and that and that whole because there was a big a bit of a squatting scene down in London and there was a lot of bands that were just around at that time, weren't there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we would we would kip over at Dan's place in Clapham and on regular basis and then we would if he wasn't available to stay with then we would stay with Jerry Thackeray you know the legend the, you know the legendary legend and and he would quite happily put bands from Scotland up on a regular basis as well so there was that support network you know for people coming down little or no money and you know put, uh, put uh, the gigs on that they're Room at the top, or wherever the Clarendon, and you know the, all these kind of iconic venues. But at the time, it was just folks helping folks, like-minded people, and it's, it was a great thing to be a part of. Yes, well, absolutely. Because yes. did you get the Neil Taylor book, which was um, C eighty six and all that? Because I'm sure I haven't read it for a while or looked through it, but um, I'm sure the Soup Dragons appear in it quite a lot. Because yeah, uh, I, I haven't read it. No, no. But yes, but I, I won't look out for it now. Yeah. yeah, I think it's quite tricky to get hold of. But I mean, um, yeah. So, so yes, I'm still sort of excited about that whole that world of Dan Tracy because that's that's a whole other gig, isn't it? Really. Yeah, I mean that's that's quite. I mean Dan's thing was quite. Um, yeah, he was very much down one one particular path, you know. But it was. I mean, he was open to other bands. Obviously, he was very supportive of other bands, but he obviously had, he didn't have his own troubles to seek. But you know, I think people are hopefully now waking up to seeing him as the visionary that he actually was. You know, just one of these guys that kind of invented in, indie music as we know it today. You know, just putting out his own thing and doing it himself. You know, it started in the, the late punk and just having that sixties refracted thing. You know, and it. It just it was a bit, the kind of the indie blueprint, really. Yes, well, absolutely. Yeah. And I know there was another band from 
Sheffield, who used to sort of go down and stay with Dan as well. From I think they were called the One Thousand Violins. Yeah, I do remember meeting them in Dan's front room. I yes, can, I can vouch for that being true. Yeah. Oh, yes. So you knew Emily Brown, didn't you? She was Dan's girlfriend. Yeah. That's yeah. the one. Because there was yeah. four. There was Gordon Dawson, Phil. King, who went on to be part of Lush and has also played with um, Jesus and the Mary Chain and Sandy Fleming as well. But Emily was uh-huh. the the girlfriend of Dan. So yeah, that was that's quite that's quite a nice connection actually. That's a really good connection. Yeah. So yes, so brilliant. Sorry, I'm just slightly speechless with all that excitement actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's quite nice when you sort of get those kind of moments that you think. Okay. Yeah, and it, and, it, and it kind of squares the circle and it kind of brings things back round to you know where you start and all that kind of thing. It's really good. Yes, well, you know, I think it is going to be March 2020 that that particular or even April. It's a tricky time to be releasing music, isn't it? But um, hopefully, people. Um, still buy it and, and get it so Jim so what would you what would you say to a an 18 year old self or, or something that you kind of thought god that's something that I've really learned from being in this business and just life just generally that I would have mm-hmm. yes I just didn't know and it's like yeah your, your 18 year old self might not want to hear it but you know at the same yeah. time you thought oh you know it wouldn't be often a complex thing but just one of those oh that would have been handy yeah, I mean, it's, it's the old cliche. But, I mean, just be nice to everybody. Treat people the way you'd like to be treated yourself because you, you never know 20, 30 years later you might call in somebody or somebody's high up in the business and you might need a hand and they'll be there for you. If, if you've been good to them, they'll be good to you. Yes. yes. And also, I mean, no one... I mean, that whole thing of bands reforming, I think, is a bit of an odd thing. But one, as a fan, you quite, you'd hope that they, the members might still sort of occasionally send each other a Christmas card or if they can remember the birthday. I mean, is the, are the dynamics of the band kind of OK now after all this time? Yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody's, it's all water under the bridge. Everybody's got their own life and doing their own thing. So everybody looks back in it with, you know, fondness. You know, there's maybe bits that you think, oh, God, did we actually do that? But, you know... At the end of the day, we all enjoyed it. We were all in it together. And so, yeah, I mean, we're all, we're all in touch with each other. So if anybody needs a hand, we'll certainly help each other out. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> and just, I mean, one thing that I've always had a struggle with in life, well, there's probably more than one, but your Flexi Disc single, If You Were the Only Girl in the World, is that one, is that available anywhere? Because I have to be honest, I've never heard it. Um, I'm not to be honest. I'm not sure. Um, the only place I would think you'd maybe hear it on is YouTube, perhaps. Yeah. I don't know if they'd be anywhere, but I mean, I, I'm not even sure I've got a copy. <laughs> um, seriously, these things are aren't built to last. That's for sure, and we, we didn't treat them particularly well. And yeah, yes. I would mean, maybe YouTube's maybe the place for that. I will have a look, <gasps> and I'm glad that you're still getting yeah. some royalties from some of those massive singles because it's always nice when people. Yeah can um, still think, yes, we didn't get completely ripped off with a bad deal. Yeah, I think the, the good thing about it was, and it didn't happen to every band, we actually managed to pay back our record company. So um, after that point, then everything is profit. So, you know, they were, they're in that lucky position that they managed to you know move into profit with the, the Soup Dragons. So that's, that's good. It's always good. It's always good. Look, Paul, thank you ever so much. 
And uh, when I've that, I'll send you a link to it as well and tell you. Sure. And that'll be great. But thanks. At last we did it, which was really good. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> look, and best of luck with your, you know, the snow goose. Um, uh, like I said, I really, you know, hope it goes well and hope, um, hope after this year, it will still, you know, we can sort of yeah. uh, appreciate it with uh, slightly calmer, calmer waters going on. Anyway, look, have a great day and take care. And uh, thank you, dear. Self isolation. Hopefully, it'll all be a distant memory soon. Yes, fingers crossed. Thank you, David. Take care there. Cheers. You Bye. too. Bye bye. Bye bye.